I'm sure you all thought I was dead or something, right? Or I had chickened out? Nope. I've been busy with finals. But I've been grinding this out whenever I have time. I promise you, it isn't as easy as it sounds. In any case, what I've got for you today is the events of Operation Barbarossa from June 22nd to the beginning of July. Obviously, most of this episode is about the battles on the ground, as well as the battles in the air, and some of the political and economic developments, and then the overall outlook from the first week. Because of the complexity of the topic, I'm going to include some relevant maps in the description, as well as links to animated maps that might help you better visualize what's going on. So, let's get into it. Of the three army groups, Army Group North was given the lowest priority, due to the relative lack of important economic and political objectives along their route. That route called for them to capture the Baltic states, newly annexed into the USSR, as well as parts of north-central Russia, an end goal set at Leningrad, where Finnish forces would aid German troops in taking the former imperial capital. Army Group North, led by Wilhelm von Lieb, was assigned the 16th and 18th Armies and Panzer Group 4. Air support would be provided primarily by Luftwaffe 1, as well as elements of Luftluft 5. The two provided a total of about 820 aircraft. A few quick notes about aircraft counts. I'm referring to total aircraft held by these units directly prior to the invasion. That number includes those aircraft in the of repairs and includes all types of aircraft regardless of their use. So at this moment, connecting to that, Luftloats tended to have many more support and reconnaissance aircraft than Soviet frontal aviation. So the disparity between German and Soviet air forces in terms of fighters and bombers, at least the number of fighters and bombers, is more dramatic than might appear just comparing the raw number of aircraft. Facing Army Group North would be the Baltic Special Military District. When war began, these forces were reorganized into the Northwestern Front. Led by F.I. Kuznetsov, the forces in this area consisted of the 8th, 11th, and 27th Armies. Armored support came in the 3rd and 12th Mechanized Corps. The 1,200 planes of the Baltic Special Military District would act as air support, although the 1,300 planes of the Leningrad Military District would inevitably come into service soon after any invasion. In line with armored warfare doctrine, tank units would spearhead the combat. For Army Group North, this meant the forces of Panzer Group 4, divided into Jörg Reinhardt's 41st Corps and Erich von Manstein's 56th Corps. German offensives began in the early morning of June 22nd. Soviet defenses in the region were woefully insufficient. Most units were kept far from the border to avoid giving German forces any provocation. Notably, the 12th Mechanized Corps was held around 150 kilometers back from the border, roughly halfway to Riga. In the days before the invasion, 155 kilometers, 90 to 100 miles, of the border was held by just three partially supplied rifle divisions. Wary of a German attack, Kuznetsov had instructed a number of units to move forward, but this movement was incomplete by June 22nd. Most Soviet forces in the region, and indeed Soviet forces along the entire front, were operating on a peacetime formation, meaning they were severely undermanned and undersupplied. Initial attacks in the north saw the German 41st Corps assault the town of Turingen, while the forces of the 56th Corps struck to the north. Turingen was one of the better defended border towns, and the 41st ran into considerable resistance. Thus, the town was not captured until 8 p.m. on the 22nd. However, once the town was taken, resistance in the area was light, and the first day saw the 41st advance 30 kilometers. 
In the north, however, Manshan's 56th Corps managed to bypass most Soviet resistance, focusing on capturing a bridgehead over the Zvina River, some 300 kilometers away. This strategy proved much more successful, advancing 70 kilometers in 24 hours. The Soviet response was poor. Kuznetsov's first plan called for the 12th and 3rd Mechanized Corps to penetrate the left and right flank of the German attack and encircle the spearhead. However, communication breakdowns and poor coordination rendered this impossible. Rifle divisions near the border were unable to hold off German forces for long enough that the Mechanized Corps to assemble. In desperation, partially assembled Soviet units launched piecemeal attacks. Without sufficient air support or artillery, these attacks were costly failures. German tanks and anti-tank forces mauled smaller and poorly organized Soviet assaults, reducing the strength of mechanized corps and rifle divisions before they could gather in strength. On June 24th, the 2nd Tank Division of the 3rd Mechanized Corps managed to surprise the 6th Panzer Division. German forces were completely taken aback by the appearance of T-34 and KB tanks. Pre-war German intelligence had completely failed to detect even the existence of these tanks, and soldiers were shocked when their anti-tank shells bounced harmlessly off these heavily armored models. In fact, German troops were so frightened that, that they nearly broke and fled. However, German troops held and Soviet attacks broke down amidst mounting losses and supply shortages. Elements of the 41st Corps managed to outflank Soviet forces in the area, encircling the 2nd Tank Division. German forces found that their howitzers, as well as their 88mm anti-aircraft guns, were effective against the T-34 and KV tanks, and further realized that the tracks were the most vulnerable part of these vehicles. By June 27th, these battles had come to an end. Much of the 3rd Mechanized Corps had been destroyed, including the totality of the 2nd Tank Division, although the last three days' combat had significantly held up the German advance and imposed a substantial toll. At the same time, German infantry from the 1st and 26th Army Corps had nearly completely encircled much of the 12th Mechanized Corps. Two days of brutal fighting saw the 12th Mechanized Corps lose up to 80% of its strength. In these days, it was common to see lightly armored Soviet tanks attacking German anti-tank positions. Predictably, losses were horrendous. By the 26th or 27th of June, Kuznetsov had realized that Lithuania could not be held. Surviving forces of the Northwestern Front were advised to retreat to defensive positions along the Divina River in Latvia. However, by 8 a.m. on June 26, the 8th Panzer Division under Manstein had managed to see the bridgehead over the Divina, preempting Soviet plans. But Manstein was in no position to expand this bridgehead. The 315-kilometer advance conducted in just four days had exhausted his men and supplies. Moreover, the 41st Army Corps was over 150 kilometers behind, and a further advance by Manstein would dangerously overextend his corps. Kuznetsov had hoped to eliminate this bridgehead before the 41st Corps had caught up or Manstein's 56th Corps could continue the assault. This task fell primarily to the threadbare 21st Mechanized Corps, recently strengthened by high command and sent over 200 kilometers to join the Northwestern Front. Despite the poor state of Manstein's forces, particularly the 8th Panzer Division, the 21st Mechanized Corps was unable to retake the bridgehead. Soviet efforts were foiled by a lack of ammunition and a tendency to commit forces piecemeal. By the time the 21st broke off its attacks on June 30th, it had only seven tanks left. By the 29th, elements of the 41st Army Corps had caught up and established a bridgehead at Yakapils. With the Divina line well and truly collapsed, Kuznetsov ordered a retreat to the pre-annexation lines of defense at Skov and Ostrov. 
On June 30th, though, Kuznetsov was relieved of duty, replaced by Pyotr Sobinikov. On July 1st, the 1st Infantry Division entered Riga. Further operations would push Army Group North towards Ostrov in pursuit of its final goal at Leningrad. The conduct of Army Group North was a mixed bag. They had made significant territorial gains and inflicted heavy losses on Soviet forces of the Northwestern Front. At this point, they had also managed to consistently preempt and spoil Soviet attempts at establishing coherent lines of defense. However, German forces had largely failed to encircle and destroy major Red Army units, with the exception of the 2nd Tank Division. In essence, while Army Group North had done a good job pushing back and damaging Soviet forces, they had not managed to destroy them as they had planned, and they could expect continuing resistance. Moving south, Army Group Center was given the priority of the three Army Groups. As part of this, it received two Panzer Groups instead of one, namely Panzer Group 2 and 3 in addition to the 4th and 9th armies. Luftflotte II, the son of air support, was the largest of the air fleets, and it could muster 1,700 machines. Facing them were the forces of the Special Western Military District, to be known as the Western Front. These included the 3rd, 4th, and 10th armies, and the 6th, 11th, 13th, and 14th Mechanized Corps, as well as other units assigned the Frontal Command. A note that individual Soviet divisions are significantly smaller than German divisions at this time, made even worse by the lack of manpower these divisions had on the outbreak of the war. Two mechanized corps were also held in reserve at the frontal level, those being the 17th and 20th, however these two corps existed only on paper, with at most 20 tanks each. Air support would be provided by the force of the Western Military District, which numbered around 1,800 aircraft. The central sector included a large bulge that jutted out towards German territory. Initial German plan to position the most powerful forces of Army Group Center to the north and south of the bulge. Panzer Group 3 was stationed in the north and Panzer Group 2 in the south. These forces would penetrate Soviet defenses and encircle Red Army troops in the Bialystok area. Once completed, Army Group Center would capture Minsk and travel along the Minsk-Moscow Highway, capturing Smolensk en route with Moscow as its final goal. Dmitry Pavlov, who commanded the Western Front, had failed to take the same preparations that Kuznetsov had made in the North, and was unprepared for a flexible defense. This meant that most of his forces were positioned well within the bulge, meaning they were liable to be encircled. Soviet forces in the area also suffered from the same logistical and communication issues that afflicted the other fronts. In the northern sector of Army Group Center, Hermann Hulse Panzer Group 3 began its assault by attacking the Soviet 11th Army, which was actually part of the Northwestern Front. Simultaneously, Heinz Guderian's Panzer Group 2 struck the Western Front's 4th Army at Brest-Litovsk, the site of the odious tree that ended the Eastern Front of the First World War. Focusing on the south, the first obstacle for Panzer Group 2 was the crossing of the Western Boog River. With the aid of air support and combat engineers, the 24th Army Corps under Panzer Group II was able to capture an intact bridge. But the other Army Corps, the 47th, had to neutralize Soviet bunkers on the other side of the river, and then rely on pontoon bridges and submersible vehicles to establish a beachhead. Even after the acquisition of beachheads in the early morning of June 22nd, the narrow bridges slowed crossing so that Panzer Group II was not present in force on the other side of the Western Boog until the end of the 22nd. While Soviet forces were in the area, including the 14th Mechanized Corps, their dispersion, as well as Luftwaffe's strikes and hesitation of command, granted Guderian's panzers a quiet night to move and assemble their forces. 
The 14th Mechanized did counterattack on the morning of the 23rd, but mostly used light tanks without infantry support. These proved easy prey for German forces, who progressively demolished Soviet units in the area. The 47th Corps was able to advance 70 kilometers that day, while the 24th Corps achieved similar gains. In the northern sector, near Grodno, the 8th German Army Corps under the 4th Army eviscerated the Soviet 4th Rifle Corps the morning of the 22nd. Soviet counterattacks in the area largely came to nothing, and even at times where Soviet blows had the potential for success, they were foiled by superior German communications, air support, and the trepidation, not to mention incompetence, of Soviet commanders. In light of these failures, Grodno was abandoned by the Soviet Third Army, while High Command ordered a prompt counterattack to try and remove the threat to the city before German forces advanced too far. The 6th Mechanized Corps, which was supposed to conduct the counterattack, was held up by poor information and a lack of fuel. When they finally managed to conduct an assault in the morning of June 24th, they were beaten back with heavy losses. Further attacks by the 6th the next day fared a little better, although newly arrived Soviet heavy tanks did manage to put the fear of God into German troops. All the same, Soviet forces were being back. At the same time, it became increasingly clear that the main danger was not in these attacks themselves, but in the German tanks driving towards Minsk, threatening to encircle huge pockets of Soviet forces. Pavlov shifted his, his efforts towards slowing down these spearheads, but he found himself with few options to do so. In the northern sector, elements of the 3rd Panzer Group had already taken the major Lithuanian city of Vilna without opposition. The 21st Rifle Corps stood as one of the last obstacles between the 3rd Panzer Group and Minsk. The 21st put up a substantive effort, but German mobile forces were able to outmaneuver it and near Minsk on the 25th of June. To the south, Panzer Group II shattered the remainder of the 14th Mechanized Corps and raced northwards from Minsk. Pavlov managed to place the 47th Rifle Corps in the way, but they were unable to halt the German advance. Between these converging northern and southern thrusts, German forces managed to reach the outskirts of Minsk on June 26. Minsk proved a tough nut to crack. Fortified by a multi-echelon defensive line and defended ferociously by Soviet troops, but German tanks were able to slowly work their way through the defenses, although heavy rain and mud, an omen of things to come, severely slowed and disabled their vehicles. By June 28th, Soviet defenses were on the verge of collapse. Notably, though, a great many of the remaining defenders were able to break past German lines and cross the Berezina River, marking a significant failure in German encirclement tactics. All that being said, once the 2nd and 3rd Panzer Groups met up, they formed a pocket that enveloped the equivalent of 20 divisions, not including tens of thousands of Soviet troops killed or captured prior to the creation of what would be called the Bialystok Minsk Pocket. Army Group Center had seen the most success in this first week. Blessed with priority in weapons and men, they struck unprepared Soviet defenses along a disadvantageous position. German forces in the area proved skilled at avoiding combat when beneficial, opting to take key points to establish large encirclements. Soviet defenders did put up a firm resistance, but their relative weakness and positioning within the bulge, rather than on the flanks of the sector, severely limited their potential. The establishment of the Bialystok-Minsk pocket, while not eliminated by the end of the week, essentially destroyed the Western Front, leaving the door wide open for a German drive to Smolensk and beyond. To the south, further to the south, Axis forces faced a more difficult situation. Army Group South, led by Gerd von Rundstedt, was expected to capture Ukraine, rich in grain, industry, and raw materials. From there, further operations could be launched to capture the Caucasus region, which produced most of the USSR's oil, something Germany was constantly in desperate need of. Despite the vital strategic implications of this, 
Army Group South received secondary priority. It contained the German 6th, 11th, and 17th Armies in the 1st Panzer Group, as well as the Romanian 3rd and 4th Armies. Luftflotte 4 provided air support and had between 1,100 and 1,200 machines. Axis forces were split into two main groups. The stronger of the two, consisting of the 6th and 17th German armies and the 1st Panzer Group, were positioned in the northern sector, located along the border between German-occupied Poland and Soviet-occupied Poland. A secondary group, consisting of the 3rd and 4th Romanian armies and the 11th German army, were to conduct a supporting strike from a southerly position along the Romanian-Soviet border at a later date. Together, the two groups planned to conduct thrusts across the Ukraine, rapidly encircling Soviet forces in the area and gaining a bridgehead over the Dnieper River in the Kiev region. Soviet forces in the area consisted of the southwestern and southern fronts, what had formerly been the Kiev Special Military District and Odessa Military District, respectively. The southwestern front correlated in the same area as the stronger group of German forces and the southern front along the Romanian border, the weaker group of German forces. Forces in this area, particularly the southwestern front, were especially strong, as Stalin had anticipated that Ukraine would be the primary target for a German attack. The southwestern front, under the command of Mikhail Kirponos, included the 5th, 6th, 12th, and 26th armies. Armored forces in the region were numerous, and Kirponos could call on the 4th, 8th, 9th, 15th, 16th, 19th, 22nd, and 24th mechanized corps, although not all of these were in the immediate border areas. An additional four rifle corps and an airborne corps were under front command. Air support was provided by the planes of the Kiev Special Military District, and it amounted to around 1,900 to 2,000 aircraft. The southern front was less powerful, but under the command of Ivan Tulyanov, it could still boast the 9th Army, the 2nd and 18th Mechanized Corps, and an additional two rifle and one airborne corps. Aviation provided by the Odessa Military District came to around 950 planes. The first challenge for German forces in the southern sector was the crossing of the western Boog in the face of considerable Soviet fortifications on the eastern bank of the river. The 290th Infantry Division managed to see the bridgehead at Usteluk, while another crossing was taken to the south. Both of these occurred in the early morning of the 22nd. Seizing these bridges so early was a major and necessary success, but German forces were unable to fully exploit this, and attempts to send significant strength over the western Boog were frustrated by continuing Soviet resistance and the narrowness of the bridgehead. However, once a critical mass of German forces had managed to cross the river and neutralize nearby resistance, they swept through the surrounding area. By day's end of June 22nd, the 11th Panzer Division had pushed 30 kilometers eastward, seizing several key positions and placing the 14th Panzer Division in place to thrust towards Lutz. Lutz was an important intermediary goal. Soviet responses to these initial thrusts were somewhat confused. Mikhail Karaponis had ample forces in the area and had better prepared for a potential invasion than the other two fronts, but suffered from severe communication issues that made contact with subordinates extremely difficult for the first two days, and this was even worsened by Luftwaffe strikes and the general chaos that goes with war. During this time, local commanders tended to make their own decisions without knowledge of the full situation. As part of this, the 22nd Mechanized Corps was ordered to strike elements of the 6th Army near the town of Vladimir Volinsky. Slightly later, Kirponis was able to order the 15th Mechanized Corps to counterattack the 11th Panzer Division. Further troops were ordered to create a defensive position in the Lutsk area. Efforts by the 15th Mechanized Corps were beaten back with heavy casualties, and the morning of the 24th, German tanks kept up the advance towards Lutsk. They ran into a blocking unit, which came close to severely damaging the 14th Panzer Division, but it lacked sufficient infantry support. 
Meanwhile, the 11th Panzer Division advanced about 60 kilometers towards Dupnil, bypassing the 15th Mechanized Corps. Some combination of command incompetence and miscommunication seems to have led the 15th Mechanized Corps to misunderstand their goal and just general military strategy. It's unclear what, but they essentially allowed themselves to be bypassed by the 11th Panzer Division. Despite having an opportunity to strike into the right flank of the 11th Panzer Division in what would have normally been an almost suicidal move by the German commander. By this point, what would become known as the Battle of Brody or the Battle of Dubno was well underway, as Soviet and German armor and infantry clashed over control of the Brody-Dubno area. Further to the south, the 17th German army was nearing Lvov. On the 25th of June, German forces were able to seize Lutsk, securing the city before Soviet reinforcements could complete their march to the front. By 2 p.m. that day, the 11th Panzer Division had taken Dubno itself. These advances wedged German forces between the Soviet 5th and 6th armies, making coordination between the two difficult. Soviet High Command, or Stavka, was insisting that Kirponos execute a double pincer assault on Soviet forces in the Dubno area. But Red Army forces were neither in position nor conditioned to do this, and desperate efforts at counterattacks on the 26th of June only continued to bleed the front. However, Soviet forces were able to establish a decent blocking position east of Lutsk. The last half week or so of German advances had formed a bulge pointing eastwards. In the southern portion of this bulge, the 8th and 15th Mechanized Corps tried and failed to advance on the 48th German Army Corps. They had been marched from positions in the east to the front, along the way losing up to half their tanks due to mechanical and supply problems. The extent of Soviet command and communication incompetence is probably best exemplified by the humiliating failure of the 15th Mechanized Corps against a single German infantry division. The 126th Tank Division, part of the 15th Mechanized, thrust against the 57th German Infantry Division. On paper, this should have been an easy victory. But Soviet efforts were muddled from the start. Reconnaissance was practically non-existent, Soviet armor was unable to successfully ford even a small river, German forces had vastly superior support in the form of air superiority and artillery. Soviet forces were eventually able to force themselves into the village of Lishnev, but delays in doing so meant that elements of the 16th Panzer Division were able to arrive in the area and counterattack before the 15th Mechanized could secure their positions. In the face of an armored counterattack, the 15th had to fall back. Returning to the front as a whole, as June 26 ticked on, Kirponos, urged on by the Stavka, attempted to strike the flanks of the German spearhead from Rovno in the north and Dubno in the south. The Rovno pincer broke down in the face of the 14th Panzer Division and its supporting infantry. Counterattacks by the 13th and 14th Panzer threatened to completely destroy the 9th and 19th Mechanized Corps. Meanwhile, the 11th Panzer Division broke through light Soviet defenses in the center and pushed on to Ostrog. The Soviet Southern Pincer, on the other hand, saw some real success. On June 27, the 8th Mechanized Corps was able to launch a well-organized assault against German forces that managed to encircle the greater part of the 11th and 16th Panzer Divisions, as well as the 75th Infantry. Losses were high in these assaults, but by early afternoon, a significant Soviet element had forced their way into the outskirts of Dubno. While the Southern assault was proving successful, without achieving something in the north, there was simply no way that the operation as a whole would succeed. But operations in that northern sector were going nowhere, merely grinding down Soviet forces in the area. Unfortunately, Soviet victories in the south proved short-lived, 
Infantry was not in place to solidify the encirclement, meaning that the whole pocket had to be held by breakthrough forces. This meant a thinly spread line liable to be counterattacked, broken through, and possibly counterencircled. A rapid German response was able to break the link between the 8th Mechanized Corps and the main Soviet force, and follow-up attacks destroyed much of the 8th Mechanized Corps by the end of June 28th. Smelling blood in the water, von Kleist deployed his reserve forces. The 9th Panzer exploded on the infantry of the Soviet 5th Army, while the newly arrived 16th and 25th Infantry shored, the, shored up the German defenses at Rovno, which freed up German panzers for further thrusts. The last few days saw confused actions in this initial area of operations. German forces mopped up remnants of Soviet defenders as Kiponis ordered a retreat to the Stalin line. The southern sector proved to be the most difficult for German forces overall. This can largely be chalked up to the strength of Soviet forces in the region, although the skill of select Red Army commanders in the area also deserves some credit. Soviet forces in the Ukraine saw the most success at this time, with certain Soviet thrusts in the Dubno area showing real promise, as we discussed. However, even these initial successes were foiled or never allowed to mature, largely due to a lack of communication, command, and supporting forces. What needs to be emphasized here is that this first week offered an opportunity for German spearhead units to be cut off and destroyed before infantry could secure their flanks. In general, Soviet forces responded too slowly to take advantage of this. This is true, of course, in the south most significantly, but also along the other fronts. By the time the southwestern front had assembled sufficient forces to even make a breakthrough, German infantry was securing the gains secured by the panzers. Most of the events of this first week are part of the Battle of Dubno, that is to say, most of the events in the southern sector. Interestingly, the Battle of Dubno is considered a strong candidate for the largest tank battle of all time. The Battle of Kursk has typically been given this accolade, but many historians argue that operations in the Kursk area were simply spread over too large a region to be considered a single battle in a strictly military sense. The relative strength and scale of Soviet forces in the area meant that German attacks were largely unsuccessful at encircling and destroying wholesale large units, although certainly many units were severely damaged. All the same, Army Group South dealt severe material blows to Red Army forces in the first week. Several mechanized corps were rendered combat ineffective due to losses of over 50%, although a shocking amount of equipment was lost simply due to mechanical and logistical problems rather than actually in combat. And while German losses were not particularly severe, their limited success was a major source of concern for German commanders. In the air, the first week was an almost unmitigated disaster for the Red Air Force. Soviet forces were caught woefully unprepared both in the ground and in the air. Far too many planes were crammed into air bases, which were themselves far too close to the border. This made it easy for German bombers and fighters to quickly strike Soviet air bases before they could respond. These airstrikes were extensive, hitting 66 air bases on the first day with a force of 1,250 aircraft. These strikes were stunningly successful. Entire Soviet air divisions were destroyed or crippled beyond use. The 9th Mixed Air Division, for existence, practically ceased to exist, losing 347 of its 409 aircraft on the very first day of Operation Barbarossa. Those Soviet pilots that managed to get off the ground found themselves in a killing field. German aircraft swarmed the field, or the skies. The standard German fighter, the Messerschmitt Bf-109, was head and shoulders above the most common Soviet models. 
these Soviet models, mostly I-15s, I-16s, and their variants were slower, less maneuverable, and less well-armed than the BF-109. German pilots were in general better trained, and many had honed their skills through combat experiences in the skies over Spain, Poland, France, and Britain. Soviet losses that day were almost incomprehensible. Confusion and problems in documentation make it hard to say just how many aircraft were lost, German accounts being subject to exaggeration and Soviet estimations being subject to under-exaggeration. All the same, internal Soviet documents report the loss of 3,900 planes, almost half the total aircraft in the western districts, within the first week. German losses numbered a tenth or a twentieth, depending on who you ask, but insubstantial compared to the damage they had inflicted. The origins of this abject failure are multifaceted, and it's something I go into a significant amount of detail on in my History of the Red Air Force episode. Check that out. But suffice it to say that the Red Air Force suffered an extreme lack of trained pilots and officers. Aviation infrastructure was overburdened, and the vast majority of Soviet aircraft was highly outdated. Perhaps most disastrously, the Soviet Air Force was completely unprepared for an attack. For the Luftwaffe, things were much different. The standard German aircraft at the time, BF-109 for the fighters and German bombers, tended to be of high quality, with well-trained pilots and crews. This is not to say that Luftwaffe was some perfect war machine. It lacked long-range aircraft, particularly long-range bombers. It consistently suffered from fuel shortages, and it had to compete with the Army and Navy for the limited resources of the Reich. Returning to the events on the ground, or more accurately, in the air, the devastation of the VVS the Red Air Force, suffered, did not stop it from counterattacking. In particular, a number of bombing raids were desperately ordered, hoping to hold up the German advance. In these first days, Soviet bombers often lacked fighter escorts, making it vulnerable prey for German fighters. Despite this, Soviet bombers proved relentless. German witnesses were frequently shocked by their bravery and sheer dedication. One recalled a group of 19 Soviet bombers attacking German forces from a height of 900 meters, which is a tremendously risky maneuver for bombers. Braving German fighters and German anti-aircraft positions, this bomber group completed their mission, losing 18 of their 19 machines in the process, as well as the crews. At 7.15 a.m. on June 22nd, a directive was issued by Defense Commissar Semyon Timoshenko that permitted airstrikes up to 160 kilometers inside German-held territory. But even by this early stage, Soviet air power on the border had already been shattered. Commanders had almost no understanding of what was going on in their area of operations, let alone along the entire front, and they desperately distributed whatever remaining air strength they had, as the Luftwaffe seemed to be everywhere at once. Already on this first day, Soviet pilots were turning to desperate measures. Among these was Tehran, wherein a pilot would ram their plane into an enemy. Although the Tehran may seem suicidal, in many cases that was the result, it bore more resemblance to an extremely risky tactic than a dedicated suicide mission. Many pilots who executed this maneuver did manage to survive, with some even technically becoming Tehran aces, killing over five German planes and surviving by ramming their own aircraft. Describing the course of the air war in this first week is quite difficult. Air warfare is much more fluid and mobile than ground combat. It doesn't have established front lines or kind of smooth offensives. And I'm not nearly as well-versed in understanding and describing it as I am with ground combat. In broad terms, however, we can describe the Luftwaffe's air superiority along the front as nearly absolute. 
True, in several places, localities, and sectors, spirited Red Air Force resistance managed to temporarily slow down the German advance, but they proved unable to hold it consistently. It was usually shattered pretty quickly with massive German blows, really eviscerating whatever strength there was in the area. And as such, it was simply unable to be sustained or held along a wide area. The advantages of this air superiority gave German forces, German ground forces, are difficult to overstate. Deep reconnaissance operations granted German units advanced knowledge about Soviet troop movements and attacks. German control of the skies allowed Stukas, uh, ground attack aircraft, to spray Soviet forces freely. Stukas were often called in when Soviet forces put up especially strong resistance and were typically effective in turning the tide. The same Stukas, alongside fighters, limited Soviet movements to nighttime, severely reducing mobility. On the political side, the Stavka, like I said, the high command, was officially established on June 23rd. Made of a mix of major political and military leaders that would oversee the war effort, it would assume a role of kind of the centralized authority for arguably the governance of the USSR, but at the very least the management of the war effort as well as the economy. On June 24th, an evacuation council was created to manage the removal of Soviet civilians and economic assets from war areas. On June 30th, the State Defense Committee, or GKO, was established as a sort of war cabinet. The GKO would centralize and streamline government control of the economy and the military. And one of its major roles would be the evacuation of industry from vulnerable regions into the Soviet interior. Looking at this week as a whole, from all angles, it represented, by any reasonable measure, a great victory for Germany. Wehrmacht forces managed to catch the Red Army and Red Air Force unprepared, seizing control of the air and mauling Soviet forces on all fronts. Within this particular time frame, German losses were sustainable given their advance. But yet, I emphasize this is within this weakened change. However, the distances covered were already taxing German logistics, weakening spearhead forces and slowing the advance. We can look at Manstein's need to pause and wait after seizing a valuable bridgehead, or we can look at the exhaustion of some Army Group South forces due to the stiff resistance put up. All over the front, German forces were inflicting disproportionate casualties, but it was still taxing to go into battle after battle after battle with a quantitatively superior force. Moreover, many advocates for Barbarossa were surprised that the Soviet government had not already collapsed. Remember, Hitler himself had said about the USSR that we only need to kick the door down and the whole Rhine structure will come crumbling. That was not proving so, not yet. Even more were shocked by the fierceness with which Soviet troops resisted. When caught in encirclements, many Soviet troops prefer the fight to the death and refuse to be captured. However, despite any misgivings or missed opportunities the Wehrmacht had lost, they had established themselves in this first week as a qualitatively superior force, steadily eroding Soviet numerical advantages while making rapid advances. At this juncture, the survival of the USSR is far from certain. And that's it for this week. Something this specific and detailed and granular was really new and difficult for me. So I, ho- I hope I did a good job. As always, let me know what you think, you know, thoughts, comments, anything else at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Until then, my name's Harry, and I'll see you next time.